Matthew chapter 13, we'll begin reading at verse 1. On that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting in by the sea. Great multitudes gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole multitude was standing on the beach. He spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had arisen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil, yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him shall be more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people have become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word, and the word, the worry of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown in the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings some forth, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. You see. Last time I was with you, we looked at the parables of Jesus, generally speaking, and indicating why Jesus spoke in parables in this method of teaching, which was a common method of Jesus' teaching. We indicated that for the elect of God, they will understand. They've been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, Jesus said. Those who are not elect, those whom God is going to pass over, they have 
brought judgment upon themselves, Jesus said. They've dulled their own hearts. They've stopped up their own ears. Uh, they've closed their eyes. He says, in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, um, and so to the vast number of those that Jesus was teaching, he, his teaching was concealed truth. They had proved themselves unworthy of divine knowledge. Now we noted that there is a certain mystery to divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And that somehow and how those two work together in conjunction with one another uh, is somewhat difficult to understand. Nonetheless, the scripture says that God has chosen some, passed over others, has chosen to reveal truth to those whom he's ordained from the foundation of the world, Others he has left in their own sins. They have no desire for the truth. They hate the light. They will not come to the light. And therefore, further judgment is upon them. And that further judgment is the fact he will teach them truth, but they will not have the capacity to understand. Nonetheless, the Bible is very clear that everyone has the biblical responsibility to respond to biblical preaching and teaching. No one can say it's not anyone's fault but themselves if they refuse to believe in Jesus. We, in one sense, are to open our own eyes, open our ears. We're to be, uh, have a heart that is pliable to hear b- biblical truth. That is our responsibility. Jesus condemned the Pharisees and the scribes and the multitudes Specifically because he said they hardened their hearts against the truth. They hardened their hearts. Hence God has given them over to their sinful ways. But at the same time, we, we just said that it is the Lord who grants repentance. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to always pray for those who are still in darkness. See, our prayers do make a difference because unless God opens the eyes, unless God opens the ears, and he he makes the heart responsive to the teaching of Scripture, no one will ever come to him. Therefore, we have a responsibility to pray for those that God uh, will show them grace and mercy. You have not because you ask not. We are told that Jesus said to his disciples, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. There in verse 11, he says that. Jesus now then begins, he will explain to them when they came to him and said, Tell us what the meaning of the parable is. So he tells them the meaning of the parable. Uh, It is is very straightforward, although people can twist the, uh, the clear meaning of scriptures, but there's not a whole lot uh, <clears throat> to interpret here, but simply to understand what Jesus says. Jesus uh, basically says this in his parable of the sower. As we go through this, he says, it is your responsibility as the hearers to respond to biblical teaching. And as I go through the parable of the sower today, then we each have to ask ourselves a very sobering question. Which soil am I? 
Now, the only soil that is a genuine believer, that is a true Christian, is the last soil. The soil that is said to be by Jesus the good soil. The soil whereby where the seed falls, they understand and they bear fruit to one degree or another. But they do bear fruit. That is the Christian. All the others we're going to see are not Christians. There have been some that have interpreted uh, the, the parable as being various degrees of the Christian life. Uh, that is, there's no justification for that kind of interpretation of the parable. As we're going to see, uh, all these other soils are, though they may give the appearance of being in the faith, as we're going to see, they're not genuine believers. So, it is incumbent, as we look at the parable here in Matthew, it's always helpful to look at the other gospel writers, and Luke is, has the parable of the sower in his gospel account, and he mentions a few things, then Matthew does it. But there are three major things to note about the parable of the sower. And that is, you have the sower, you have the, the seed, and then you have the soil. The sower, the one who's sowing, the seed, and then the soil. The, the interpretation that Jesus gives is quite straightforward. Now, first of all, Jesus says that the seed, we're told, he says, is the word of God. It's the word. It is the message. It's the gospel message. That is the seed that's being sown. Second, the sower is the one who dispenses the seed. We're told that Jesus is the one, since he told the parable, he's sowing the seed to the multitudes, to his crowd, the disciples, to the multitudes. He's sowing the seed. In this context, he is the one who is the sower. But it would be any preacher or teacher of the word. Any of his authorized preachers, any of his little ones, they are the sower of the seed. You can indicate this. We've uh, already preached on this, but if you would turn over to Matthew 10, look at verse 40. You'll see Jesus, when he sent out the disciples to preach... He said to them in verse 40, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So when Jesus gives this parable, notice uh, if you look back at chapter uh, 13, verse 9, notice when he initially gives the parable without giving the explanation, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. See if you have the capacity to understand or not. If you've hardened your heart against him, you're not going to understand. But if you have ears that are responsive, you will hear. Remember how Jesus has said in John, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. The sheep, of course, are, is that image of those who are the elect of God, who will be brought to saving faith at some point in their life. 
All others are the goats. Jesus said to some who didn't believe him, he says, the reason you can't hear me is because you're not of God. John 8, 47. So let's see if you have ears to hear. Let's see if you can understand. And whether you can understand or not determines your eternal destiny. Now we're reminded here when Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or uh, we're reminded of what Jesus says and the one who sows of what is said in Romans chapter 10. So take a look with me at Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It will always, brethren, boil down to this. Whoever is sowing the seed, and since Jesus has ascended and gone to heaven, it's all those who have preached the word of God throughout history. And all those who have preached that word faithfully, it is Jesus preaching through them. So, are you hearing Jesus preach? Some will understand that the teaching, others will not. Just here it says, how beautiful are those who do preach that gospel message. But, as Isaiah said, there are some who have not believed. And they have hardened their hearts. And keep this in mind, <clears throat> the seed that is being sown is the gospel message. That is the seed, the gospel message. Turn with me to Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6. Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6. Well, to get the context, let me back up to verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which previously you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you, also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. We could say right here, Paul was referring to many in the Colossian church were, the, were those where the seed did fall upon the good soil. And the reason we can say it, it fell on the good soil because it says it's been continually bearing fruit. And if, as we go through, note the only soil that bears fruit is the good soil, no other soil. Even though it may appear to be the real thing, it's not the real thing. And so we see here that, it, that the gospel is said to be the word of truth. 
We're also told in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that uh, the word of God, the gospel, is said to be the dunamis of God, the dynamite of God, the power of God. So, the, the seed that is being sown is going to find it's going to have some effect in everyone to some extent some it's not going to be genuine others it will find fruit in the good soil now according to if you turn back to Matthew 13 look at verse 19 Jesus said when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one in whom seed was sown beside the road. Now, several things here. First of all, it says that his word is the word of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. The gospel is from that kingdom. Its origin is from that kingdom. And it, the gospel is the conduit to that kingdom. According, uh, we see Jesus, when he was before Pontius Pilate later on, he's brought before Pontius Pilate, and I want us to take a look at that passage. Turn to John 18 and look at verses 36 and 37. Remember the gospel is the word of the kingdom of God. When Jesus was before Pilate, and Pilate had asked him, Are you a king? He said, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds in verse 36, saying, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth... Here's my voice. Now that tells you something right there about the kingdom. The kingdom's origin is not of this world. Some of this mistakenly thought that the kingdom of God has nothing to do with this uh, secular world. That's not true. It has everything to do with it. The kingdom of God has invaded this world. The thing, what Jesus is saying... Its origin, its dynamic, doesn't have any source in this world at all. Its origin is divine, not worldly. And the word that I speak, the gospel message, has its origin only in God, not of this world. And he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. See, the key is always this. Are we ever actually hearing the truth? 
Remember, Jesus gave the parable, and he says, He who has ears, let him hear. So are you going to hear? There are some who hear, who don't even have a chance to hear in one sense. Others hear, but it doesn't bear any fruit whatsoever. They only hear externally. But they don't hear with their heart. So the kingdom of God is not of this world. Uh, though it has invaded this world. Now one thing about it's interesting about the kingdom of God, and it was the prophecy of Daniel. I want us to take a look at the prophecy of Daniel. Turn to Daniel chapter 2 and look at verses 44 and 45. We're still dealing with this notion that the kingdom is not of this world. Its origin, that is, is not of this world. In this vision of Nebuchadnezzar, we see Daniel interpreting that vision of Nebuchadnezzar. And he talks about this final kingdom of the earth, which is the Roman kingdom. He says in the midst of that kingdom, which will is superior to all the other earthly kingdoms, it was actually greater than... Babylon, greater than the Medes and the Persians, greater than Alexander and Greece. It says, in the days of those kings, that is in the Roman era, it says that God, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be, will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Insomuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true. Its interpretation is trustworthy. Daniel prophesied, in the midst of the Roman Empire, God would set up a kingdom. When was Jesus born? During the reign of Augustus Caesar. And it says that's when the Lord of glory was born. And ever since then, it says that it will be this this stone that was cut out will grow into a mighty mountain that will consume the whole earth. And so Jesus says to Pilate, since my kingdom is not of this world, its origin is divine, it is, uh, and the message of the kingdom is the gospel message. See if you can hear the gospel message. Well, we've talked about uh, the, uh, the sower. Let's take a look at, um, at the soil. That, that forms the bulk of the parable. The third component, out of the, the ground, of the soil. In this case, there are four types of soil, Jesus says. And keep in mind that the soil represents the hearts of men. And their response to the sown seed. That's what the soil is. It represents their heart and how their heart is going to respond to the preached word, the gospel message. So, 
The fact that it, the word, the seed, is sown in their heart is what we're told. If you look at Matthew 13, look at verse 19, the first part of Matthew 13:19. It says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So there it is. It's the, the preached word of the soil represents the hearts of people in this condition. So, what are the four, four soils, according to Jesus? They are the seed sown beside the road. It's the seed sown by the, on the rocky ground. It's the seed sown in the thorny ground. And it's the seed sown in good soil. Four soils Jesus talks about. Four responses to the gospel message. One could say this. The heart is different in each of these soils. We could say that the seed sown by the, uh, the, the, by the road is the unresponsive heart. That's verse 19 in our text. The unresponsive heart. The seed sown on the rocky soil, we could say, is the impulsive heart. The seed sown on the thorny soil, we could call it the preoccupied heart. And then finally, the seed sown in the good soil is the good, the responsive, the well-prepared heart that bears fruit. Well, let's take a look at each of these uh, soils and what is transpiring. Well, keep in mind again that the main lesson, the main lesson of the parable is that the hearing of the gospel always is dependent upon the condition of a man's heart. Hence, the character of the heart will always determine the effect of the word upon them. Whatever your heart's condition is will determine the impact of that preached word and what effect, if any, it has upon you. What did Jesus say? The first soil uh, is that of the, uh, the hard, beaten soil. He says the soil beside the road. In ancient times, they had, like, for example, cornfields. And we're talking about the road. He's talking about those paths that oftentimes when people travel, they travel through cornfields, and you had these paths. And it could be today if you were to have a field and you walk through a certain area constantly, you beat down the soil, right? So it becomes hard. And the image is the sower goes out with his bag in the ancient times and just grabs the seed and just scattering the seed, just throwing it out, walking around, throwing it out. And some of that seed that he throws out just happens to fall near this beaten path, this hard soil. Now what Jesus says, the seed that falls upon this hard soil, it has no chance of penetrating. It doesn't even go in, doesn't do anything, but just lie on the surface. And then the birds, then since it lies on the surface, they just come down, swoop down, and snatch it up. In other words, it didn't even have a fighting chance. So what is it? How does Jesus define this soil? Well, Jesus is the one who says, this is the heart that is so callous, so hardened, so insensitive that the, the preached word has no impact whatsoever upon them. 
The devil comes along, it says, and notice how Jesus says, uh, the, the evil one, the devil, Luke calls him the devil, comes along, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Luke refers to it as the fact that just snatches it up, it doesn't even enter in, produce anything. Doesn't even start growing. Has no impact whatsoever. They're so hardened in their sins. This, in Jesus' time, were the scribes, Pharisees, and many of the multitudes. Who, though they hear it, <coughs> it, does, it has no impact whatsoever. Today, this would be the fool, the skeptic, the mocker who hates the light, has no intention to coming to the light. You ever been around that kind of person? When you talk about biblical things, they immediately become uh, challenging. They, uh, they, they want to argue against it. Nothing that you say even phases them at all. It is truly what Jesus says. Don't even bother to even talk to them further because it is casting pearls before swine. And oftentimes, well, those who are wise, those who are mature in the faith, you will often know at the outset if you're dealing with this kind of person. There are some that I have perceived with that kind of attitude, and after initially talking to them, I won't talk with them anymore. Because what they come back with is this, uh, this attitude of complete rejection. They want to argue against the faith. And you soon perceive, no matter what you say, it's going to make any difference. So at that point, I'm not going to waste my time. They have proved themselves to be a mocker, a fool. And we're to distance ourselves from those people. We're told here that Jesus says the devil comes uh, and snatches away the seed. Uh, Luke says in Luke 8, verse 12, in his account of the parable, says that the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that, hear what Luke says, so that they may not believe and be saved. That's how Luke phrases it, what Jesus said. They can't believe, and in other words, they can't be saved. When we think about that, those who cannot believe and who cannot be saved, it reminds me of what is said over in 2 Corinthians 4. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. Look at verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Let's stop right there. A veil is something put in front of your eyes so you cannot see. Or it can be a veil of the heart you cannot understand. And if you have that veil, it says you have that veil to those who are what? Those who are perishing. Have that veil. In whose case? For those who are perishing, 
In his case, the God of this world, and the God of this world, Scripture is said to be the devil. In his case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They don't have a fighting chance. Their minds have been blinded by Satan. They are the ones whereby the seed was sown. They heard the preaching, but it fazed them at none, nothing at all. And so what we see here, it doesn't faze them because the devil has blinded them. As the Bible says, we are slaves of Satan. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says that we are deadened in our sins, that, <clears throat> that there are those who walk according to the prince of the power of the air, of the air and are said to be sons of disobedience. They are his slaves. And therefore, they don't believe. And as Jesus says, that seed sown on that, that hardened road are those who hear, but they cannot believe and be saved. Some people, when they hear God's word, they are mockers. They hear it, and they don't understand it. Their mind is darkened. That's why they don't understand See, that's why continuing to talk to some people is of no avail because no matter what you say, they have no capacity to understand. It has a tremendous uh, implication for what we call apologetics, how you deal with those outside the faith. There are some who are so hardened and you will find out who they are don't even bother after a while, once they reveal themselves to be a mocker. You know, Paul ran into those in Athens. And he found it's the same thing. He ran against those. He talked about the resurrection of Jesus. And there were some that sneered and said, well, but, uh, who is this pseudo-philosopher that's come to talk to us about this? And you had those philosophers who didn't believe uh, in that the, it was any way possible for any man to rise from the dead. There are those who thought there was no life after death. So any preaching of the resurrection to them was abject foolishness. And it says they stopped at Paul. They called him a pseudo-teacher, philosopher. There were others who were curious, who said, you know, we haven't heard this, but we'll hear about it later. And then there were those who immediately responded and accepted the message and believed. But see, that's what you have. <clears throat> so, regarding that first soil, the Pharisees, the scribes, the scoffers, the mockers, they are that group. They have no desire whatsoever to have the Word of God have any influence on them. On them whatsoever. However, the second soil, second soil where the seeds fallen upon, is the rocky soil, meaning that the, the the soil is over a layer of rock, so it's very thin. And when so when the seed falls upon that soil, as the nature of seeds and how they grow in, 
Uh, once it begins to sprout, you know, it begins to go down to take root. But since it's thin soil, it, uh, it doesn't have any firm root at all. It immediately comes up. You go, wow, that thing came up fast. It came up fast because it never took root. And when, since it came up fast, it says, Jesus says, when the sun begins to bear down on it, it scorches it, dries it up. What did Jesus say is that type of heart? He says that's a type of heart where the seed is falling on the, the rocky soil. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus says it's only a temporary faith. They believe for a time, but as, but as he says, but in, in time of persecution or temptation, it says it falls away. They're temporary believers. They are believing, but it's a temporary faith. It doesn't last. And, and what's amazing here is it says, it is immediately received with joy. So by all indicators to, to us, if we were to witness that kind of person, we would say, well, that's a Christian. They act like a Christian. They've received the preached word. They've responded to it emotionally. It says they're real joyous about it. All indicators is that they are a genuine believer. But you see, you have to give time. And time has a way, or the Lord has a way over time, of revealing who really are His and who aren't. And we see here that this is the person, they believe for a time, they are joyous about it, but they will fall away. They are a professed believer in Jesus. So if you were to talk to them, here's what they would tell you. I'm a Christian. That's what they would tell you. I'm a Christian. And for all practical purposes, how we think Otherwise, we don't know anything why. We don't even know anything otherwise. If someone tells me they're a Christian, they respond to it, I believe them. <clears throat> However, this is the person who has failed to count the cost of discipleship. Like Jesus said, we've looked at the passage, I won't look at it today, but I have preached on it before in Luke tw- uh, 14 where it says that Jesus turned to the multitudes that were following him, and he says, unless you're willing to hate your father, mother, brothers, and sisters against your own life, and then take up your cross and follow me, you're not my disciple. Well, that really kind of thinned out the crowd. Because, it, because he indicated there is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. And you see, the seed sown on the soil that is rocky... Because it has no depth, there's no real substance, uh, it it grows up quickly, but it it has not been tested. So when the testing comes, this type of person says, I didn't bargain for this. That's not what I bargained for. If that's what a Christian is, I don't want anything part of it. 
I remember my, the, the first time the Lord opened my eyes to that reality was in college. In my campus ministry, there was a guy, I may have told you this before, but it's been a while. This, there was a guy that responded. That he, we, we had known him in our dorm being a, a, a very heavy drug user. Next thing we know, this guy, Sam, makes his profession of faith. We forgot where that transpired. This guy, I mean, <clears throat> he makes you feel guilty for a while because he was bouncing off the walls with excitement about Jesus. I wasn't that excited about Jesus. <laughs> no, I thought I was excited about Jesus. I wasn't that excited. I mean, this guy was bubbling over. I mean, and... Uh, I thought it was extreme at the time, but who was I going to say anything? He went on about six or seven months, and then guess what? He started going to this church, and that summer they decided to make him a youth director. Now, this guy's only been a Christian, professed Christian for six months, and he's a youth director. I think they made him a youth director because he was so excited about Jesus. So they wanted to have that. That emotion, you know, transferred or uh, affect the other youth. Well, less than a year, Sam just disappears off the scene. We don't know what happened to him. I found out where he was living off campus. I decided to go, go see Sam. I knocked on the door, and I remember he comes to the door. He doesn't have that real. He's not bouncing up the walls now. And I start talking to him, and he, he didn't even let me in. It was less than five minutes. He says, I don't want anything to do with it. That's Jesus. Wait a minute. You're the guy that everybody was envying because of your excitement about Jesus. You were a youth director, remember? They didn't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. And I remember leaving, scratching my head. What in the world has happened? I didn't know that much about the parable of the sower at the time. Later on, when I did study the parable of the sower, I thought... Here he is. This is the rocky soil guy, for sure. He received it with joy, but something happened. It wasn't what he thought it was, and he fell away, just like Jesus said. Because there was no firmness to it, it couldn't withstand the trials of life. And you see... Part of the problem is this, with, with these kind of people, it's how they supposedly came to faith in the first place. That's where you can put some of the problem uh, with these people. And here's what we've got to be careful of. We have to be careful of emotional appeals to the gospel message. Where we, whereby we bombard people's emotions, really becoming manipulative. I call it spiritual manipulation. And you know what some churches do? It's, it, or we, uh, you force people to how they should respond. Well, you need to walk forward to believe in Jesus. So there's the pressure of walking forward in order to receive Jesus. That's not to say that some people don't receive Jesus, because there are some people that do. But there are some who don't. Like the guy, my first church, who, the deacon of, the, uh, of our church, whose brother-in-law left his wife and all his children in an adulterous affair, and I went to talk to him. 
And the guy said, yeah, I'm not living the way I ought to. And I said, that's to put it mildly. So you, I said, you, so you view yourself as a Christian? Oh, yeah. And why do you view yourself a Christian? And he told me, because I walked down the aisle. And I said, when you walked down the aisle, I said, did you ever repent and ask God to forgive you of anything? He said, no. I said, you did. But you're a Christian. He says, yeah. He says, because I felt forgiven. You felt forgiven. But you didn't ask for forgiveness, but you felt forgiven. Yeah. I said, so what accounts for the fact you're living in an adulterous affair and left your wife and children? Well, I said, let me tell you something right now. Because I care for you, you are not a Christian. Just want to let you know that. You don't understand what it means to be a Christian. You never repented of your sins. And that explains it. He's, oh, no, I'm all right because my preacher says I'm fine. At that point, I was more upset with the preacher than I was with him, who gave him a false assurance. This is a guy living in adultery whose assurance was, oh, I felt forgiven. He had some emotional experience. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't any kind of genuine experience with God. There are some that are told... And this is what's bad. I talked with a, uh, a lady who played uh, piano at a, at a church. This is just a typical run-of-the-mill evangelical church. And they told her during the invitation, play the music in such a way to create an atmosphere that will cause people to come forward. She said that did bother her. But she said, okay, but then she wondered, why would I want to create an atmosphere? You see what you're doing? You're creating an emotional atmosphere, but it's dangerous. Jesus says there are those who receive the message with joy, but there's no death. And the least little resistance that comes along, they're willing to throw it out. You know, throughout the history of the church... We talk about the church, the, the church, we talk about the, the visible and the invisible church. The visible church are all those who profess Christ along with their children. All right, that's the visible church. The invisible church are all the elect of God who have been truly brought to saving faith. And so within the, if I were to do a circle like this, this is the visible church. The smaller circle within that bigger circle is the, is the elect of God. I don't know who they are. But there are a lot of people that profess Christ. There are a lot who have responded emotionally. But when the times get tough, they give it up. They're not of the elect. They fall away. You know how I call these people fair-weather Christians. As long as things are going all right, they're okay. But when the weather gets tough, stormy, you see, here's what God does. God has historically done this. And I believe this is exactly what God is doing right now in the American culture with the church, the visible church. Because I've already indicated we are in a, a unique time in my lifetime whereby there is increasing hostility towards Christianity. In America. And it's escalating at, at, uh, incredible, at an incredible rate. 
to the point where we are already experiencing certain persecutions, and I believe it's probably going to get worse. But here's what the Lord does. He's going to find out who His people are. He's going to find out who are the fair-weather Christians who have no root, because He says, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to put that church through a test. I'll have some people in the government come in and arrest some people. Those who are really serious about it. Are you willing to go for, go to jail or not? Hey, I was praising uh, God the other day. I read about this guy who's in prison right now because he refused to bake a wedding cake for some homosexuals. And they have put him in jail. God is going to root out the fair weather Christians. He's going to root out. He'll bring, a, he'll bring the stormy weather designed for the purpose who really are his people or not. And he'll find out. what he does. Well, the Lord already knows, of course. But you and I will begin to find out who these people are. The problem with these people, as Jesus said, where the seed was sown on the rocky soil, is that there was no firm root. There is no discipleship. There's no surrender to Christ. There's no self-denial. There's no willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ. For Jesus' sake. There is no root in themselves. Therefore, there is no firm principles that are ever developed in this person. There is no determination of their, of their wills to really follow Jesus. There are no rooted habits, Christian habits. Beware of being this type of professed Christian. And you know what this professed Christian is, they have no concern, really, for the Word of God. No desire for the preaching and the teaching of the Word on the long haul. When given a choice, they would just as soon stay at home, go to the park, go fishing. And uh, wherever, as opposed to being, uh, they are in opposition to those, on the other hand, who desire to hear the Word who desire to be among the saints. See, he tells me a lot when some people say, well, I can be a Christian and don't even bother to go to church. That tells me a whole lot about that person. And, it's, and I'm not talking about just going to church for the sake of going to church. I'm talking about a desire to be there. Not because you're forced to be there, but a desire to be there. Mind you, there are a lot of professed Christians who virtually never read the Scriptures on their own. They have no devotions. They don't read any Christian books. They don't listen to any Christian messages. They don't do virtually anything. I want, you to, I want us to take a look at some Psalms very quickly to show you what our attitude should be. But before I take a look at the Psalms, I did, let me mention this passage. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. Look at verses 1 through 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, by it, by, by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if 
you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, you will desire, like a newborn baby, the pure milk of the Word. So the, the, one of the surest signs, whether you have a fair-weather Christian or not, whether the seed is falling upon the rocky soil, is a person's attitude towards the Word of God. Christians, those whom God has genuinely saved, they want to hear the Word. One of the things that God helped to assure me along the way as a Christian because there are times that there will, things will happen, you'll begin to wonder in your life, do I really know Jesus? I could always go back to the fact there was a time I could care less about the Word, and then when I professed Christ, what was amazing was I had a desire to read the Bible. I had a desire. I've been around those who like, that was like me, they had no desire, they professed Christ, and then they want to be in a Bible study. They, they, they were reading the Bible on their own. I didn't have to tell them to do that. The Holy Spirit was telling them to do that. Because the Holy Spirit's in them. If there's no desire for the Word, you've got to ask, well, where's the Spirit? Because the Spirit is the Word of what? Truth. Turn to Psalm. Let's start with Psalm. Well, all of these are in Psalm 119. Let's turn to Psalm 119. Let's look at verse 15. I will meditate on thy precepts and regard thy ways. I shall delight in thy statutes. I shall not forget thy word. Do you meditate? That's careful study. And do you delight in the statutes of the law of God? Do you find joy in it? Look over at verse 70 and 72. Verses 70 through verse 72. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in thy law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Now remember, the seed that falls upon the the rocky soil, when, when persecution or trials come, they fall away. Notice David's attitude here. It's good for me that when I was afflicted that I may learn thy statutes. It had actually had the opposite effect. It strengthened him. See, trials to the genuine Christian actually strengthen them. To the professed fake Christian, they apostatize. Look at verse uh, 97, Psalm 119. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Look at verses 111 through 112. I have inherited thy testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes forever, even to the end. There's your perseverance, the determination of will to follow it no matter what. It is joyous, but it's a joy that leads to perseverance. And then look at verse 162. I rejoice at thy word as one who finds great spoil. Do you love the word of God that much? Do you? 
you better ask yourself a serious question. If you don't love the Lord's word that much, you need to ask yourself where you really stand with Jesus. You really do. Christians are like newborn babes that desire the pure milk of the word. I don't have to pull, uh, force you to do anything. You have that internal desire. Why? Because you have the anointing of the Spirit. You can't be a Christian without the Spirit. That's why I always find out where people really stand by their attitude towards the Word. Do they like to go to church? Are they reading the Bible on their own or not? Outside of coming to church occasionally, these people, there's nothing really spiritual about these people. That's a very bad sign. You know why they believe? They got their uh, get-out-of-hell insurance policy. That's why they believe. But the, part, the point here is, that's a policy that's not going to be bankrupt. It won't work. See, St. Corinthians 13.5, and we'll look at the passage, I'll refer to it. We've looked at it many times. Talks about we are to examine ourselves. We are to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Do you not recognize this about yourself that Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you felt things. Why do I know Jesus is in me? Do I desire the milk of the word or not? I trust that, that there are none like that here among us. And notice Jesus says, according to Luke's account in Luke eight thirteen. Take a look at Luke 8.13. This is Luke's account of the parable of the sower. It says, And those on the rocky soil are those when they hear, receive the word of joy. They have no firm root. They believe for a while and in, in time of temptation fall away. See, there's no specified time limit how long this person goes being a pretender. It could be years. It could be years. But in time, in, whenever God chooses to bring the trial, that's the day of, of trial. That's when you find out or not. And it says they only believe for a while. And whenever God chooses to bring that, that's when he reveals the real character of the heart. Let's talk about the third soil. The soil where the seed fell among the weeds, and the weeds just choked it out. In other words, Jesus says there is no fruit. It never, it never bears fruit. Well, what gets them? Jesus says, here's what gets them. The worries of the world is what gets them. The deceitfulness of riches, it says, is what gets them. Now, we could talk about the young rich ruler. However, the young rich ruler that we will get to in chapter 19, he'll never believe, he'll never have joy initially. When he found out what the demands that Jesus was given on him to inherit eternal life, though he said he kept all the commandments, when he said he kept the whole law, Jesus, according to one of the gospel writers, says, he looked with compassion upon him and said, Well, because the man said, I've kept the whole law. 
Is there anything else to do? Yeah. Go sell everything, give to the poor, and follow me. I don't know about that, Jesus. And it says he left because he was so rich. He didn't even have initial joy. What kept him out of the kingdom? The love of the world is what kept him out. The love for his riches. He valued his riches more than Jesus. Jesus said, he asked him, is there anything what I've got to do to be sure I get to, 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 to have eternal life? Sell everything. You know what Jesus was testing with was the first commandment. Don't you? Do you have any other gods before you? He found out real fast that the young rich ruler, his, his riches were his idol. See, uh, that was a time of testing. And Jesus found out really quick where this guy stood. Uh, you know, there is uh, probably the, one of the best examples in the Scripture of those that fit into this category. His name was Demas, a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul. Now, I want us to take a look at just a couple uh, passages. He's only mentioned three times in the New Testament. He's mentioned in uh, Philemon, verse 24. Right after Titus is Philemon. He talks about those who are sending greetings. He says, verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and my fellow workers. So at that time, Demas was part of the apostolic team. And Paul says, on behalf of all these, they send their greetings to you. Demas is there. Turn over to Colossians 4, verse 14 for a moment. You find Demas. Colossians 4, verse 14. He's concluding his epistle to the Colossians. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. So here, to the Colossians. Not only to the Philemon, Demas sends his greetings. To the Colossian church, Demas sends his greetings. And then you find this sad story. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verse 10. Well, sorry, verse 9. Paul's in prison. He says, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Now, it never says about, of course, Crescens or Titus. They left for various reasons. But Demas, he says, loved the world. Having loved the world, he has left me. Now, how bad is it to be said to be a lover of the world? That's what we got to ask. Well... Turn with me to 1 John 2, and you'll see just how bad it is to be said to be a lover of the world. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Demas has forsaken me, having loved the world and gone to Thessalonica. Probably some business venture. They had already passed in Thessalonica. Something attracted Demas that he cherished more than to continue with the apostles. This is inspired scripture. So when it says that he had loved the world, Demas is your biblical example of those where the seed was sown on the thorny ground. It grows for a time, but in time their heart reveals really a second Lord. But a second Lord that takes precedence. Jesus said, remember Jesus says you can't love God and money at the same time. You'll either hate the one or love the other. Demas apparently loved the riches more than he loved God, and he forsook the faith. And so what we hear, we see that those who are lovers of the world, lovers of pleasure, they gather around people who are worldly-minded. They are people who are hedonists. They are people out for a good old time. And it can manifest itself in many ways. These, those who are lovers of the world, they can long for the, the accolades or the praises of people. They can be out for fame. They want to be popular with people. That's part of loving the world. To want the world's uh, confirmation upon you. There are those charlatan preachers who are in the ministry for money. And not every TV evangelist is in this category, but there has been enough of those who have a bad track record, who have made millions of dollars, and then next thing you know, they're not involved much anymore. Or the, the, the off doing something criminal. <clears throat> Turn with me to Titus verse 1. I mean, Titus 1 verse 11. Titus 1 verse 11 talk about some of the requirements for elders and deacons of the church. If you look at verse 11, it says uh, that these men must uh, they are to have an understanding of the word so that they may silence those who are upsetting whole families, uh, teaching things that they should not teach. In other words, there are some teachers who are out for, as it says there, for sordid gain. If you turn over to 1 Peter 5, look at verse 2. 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Talking about elders of the church. You... <clears throat> To shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So you're involved in the Christian ministry of some sort, not for worldly gain. Now, sordid means essentially covetous. That's what it means. A covetous heart. It reveals their motives. And there are some who are greedy for money. 
And because they're greedy for money, it gets the best of them, and they desert the faith. They were the seed sown in the thorny soil. And the Lord, he'll root these out too. The Lord has a way of exposing these, these frauds. Whether they're preacher frauds or they're just anybody who, as Demas uh, and others, who just give it up for the world. Finally, we come to the last soil. The good soil. Jesus said that they heard the word. Now notice what Jesus says about the good soil. They hear the word with an honest and good heart. Now, this immediately tells us they've been regenerated. Because what does the scripture say about all of us in our hearts? There is none, Romans 3, there are none who do good. No, not one. In our sinful state, we all have hardened hearts, hearts of stone. And that heart of stone must be transformed by the work of the Spirit into a heart of flesh. That means it's regenerate. So Jesus immediately is telling us that these people have been regenerated because they have a good heart. You don't have a good heart unless God has, has brought you to himself. According to Luke, what, what do those with a good heart do? It says, they hold fast to the preached word. They cling to the word of God. They're not fair-weather Christians. They're not tempted by the world. They hold fast to the Word. They persevere. And it says, because there is firm root, because in this soil, because the root goes down deep, it has stability, right? It gets nourishment. It's anchored well. It's anchored well because they've been regenerated. They desire the things of God. And note what Matthew says in, in Matthew thirteen twenty three, in his version. It says, Jesus says, those where the seed fell on the good soil, they hear and what? They understand the word. They understand the word. And here's what you can't miss. The only people making it to heaven are those where the seed has fallen on the good soil. That's what Jesus is saying. And he says, <clears throat> you must, here's the nature of that, that soil, that seed that's fallen on that soil. They understand the word. They hold fast to the word. They're not lured by the world. And they persevere to the end. That's what those where the seeds falling on the good soil. And get this. This is the only thing said about this the soils. This soil does what? Bears fruit. None of the other soils is said to bear fruit. Only this soil bears fruit. Some sixty, some a hundredfold. So, uh, let me to, to demonstrate <clears throat> about this fruit. When we say it comes in bears fruit, well, 
several ways to look at this. You manifest, first of all, the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> That's bearing fruit, okay? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love. There is joy, real joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. That's all a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Where the seeds fallen on the good soil, you're going to see growth in the fruit of the Spirit. Turn with me, it's a very important text that confirms everything that I've been saying about this last soil, being the only genuine Christian. Turn to John 15, look at verses uh, 1 and following. John 15, verses 1 through 8. I am the, the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he proves it, that it may bear more fruit. You already are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch. Dries up, and they gather them, they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my word abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it should be done for you. Now, look at this very carefully, verse 8. But this, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciple. There it is. If you don't bear fruit, Jesus says, you are not my disciple. You are not abiding in me and my word. It's no mystery. Are you a fruit bearer? Can you be convicted of being a Christian? I, I thought it was somewhat humorous. <clears throat> Every Thanksgiving, for 20-some years or more, we've gone down to Christine's and Helen's house. And Helen has the reputation of being one of the most loving people you will ever meet Christian women. And it's true. And during breakfast, we got down there at Wednesday night, spent Wednesday night, and then breakfast, Thanksgiving Day, I was eating breakfast with Aunt Helen, and we were talking about the faith, and we were talking about how terrible things are going around around us, and I said, yeah, and they're Christians, you're going to be, beginning, going to be more and more persecuted, and if you, if you live a certain way, they're going to come in and arrest you. And I'll never forget what Helen says. You know what? If they come through Lancaster and they don't arrest me, I'm going to be really mad. <laughs> and I said, no, I understand, Helen. I said, I don't think anything to worry about. I said, oh, here's what I said. I said, Helen, if they don't get you, I'll call them up and say you forgot one. She says, good. <laughs> she bears fruit. Look, you're going to be one of these soils or not. 
Most people uh, in the church, uh, you're not going to be in church if you're part of the first soil because it says the devil snatches it up. So you don't even, you don't even profess anything. But there are some that fall on the rocky soil and among the thorns, and you don't know for a while whether they are the real thing, but God finds them out. Brethren, be sure you're the last soil. Be sure you are the last soil, the good, regenerate heart that bears fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, and bears fruit of good works, that your light is shining. And that people know you're a Christian. They know you're a Christian. Why? Because you're a fruit bearer. That's why they know you're a Christian. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would convict us, that you would have us examine ourselves, and may we be found among those who, who, bear, who are the good soil. Thank you for you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. And do your work among us for the glory of of your special name. Amen.